Good morning, church. Good morning. morning. Grateful to be gathered uh, with you today. Um, If you would stand with me, I'd love uh, to read uh, the word with you. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and um, we're going to be reading from the New Revised Standard Version, Um, but it'll be up on the screen as well. It says this. You were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived, following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among us, those who are disobedient. All of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses, and we were by nature children of wrath like everyone else. But God, who is rich in mercy, Out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So in the ages to come, he might show the immeasurable measures, uh, riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you that you are a greater Savior than we are a sinner. Lord, thank you that that the state of our being might be dead, um, but you breathe life. And even as we have had an opportunity to sing it together, you are the God of revival. Um, And so, Lord, I hope that what you would continue to do amongst this people called Faith Community is that you would continue to raise us up to life. That we would experience the fullness of life that is offered in your son, Jesus. That we would know what it is to come before you in honesty, transparency, and vulnerability and say, God, my life isn't as it should be. (laughs) There are things that I wrestle with. There are things that I struggle with. There are circumstances that I am navigating that are difficult. There are situations and relational dynamics at play, Father, that are dead. Would you bring life? Lord, our hope truly is in you. And so, Jesus, wherever, wherever it might be the case, in this room, those that are watching online, wherever it may be the case, that it feels like darkness is winning out, would we know the riches of your mercy and love today? Would we hear you speak a better word over our lives? And so we say that in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Amen. Please feel free to have a seat. Michael Scott from The Office said it this way. Presence are the best way to show someone how much you care. It's like this tangible thing 
you can point to and say, hey man, I love you this many dollars worth. <laughs> Paul shows us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, that we are loved more than we could ever comprehend. God, who is rich and in mercy and who has a great love for us, gives us the gift of grace. This is how much he loves you. Now, there's a regular experience uh, that, that we have as a family, and this experience is that our boys will get invited to a birthday party uh, for a classmate or, or someone that they play sports with or someone in, in the church community. And, and what ends up happening is uh, an hour before the birthday party starts, we look at each other and say, we should probably go buy a gift. <laughs> yeah, yes, probably. And so we go into Target, and we walk up and down the aisles, and the boys and me get distracted by all the toys that we like. <laughs> and then eventually, we remember what we're there for, and then the boys bring us some gifts that they want to give to their friends, and the response is usually the exact same. Are you sure? Are you sure this is what you want to give your friend? And they respond with, with, with smiles upon their faces, and they will respond with something that just essentially is saying, yeah, I know, I know that my friend would love that gift. And our response as parents is usually, well, you know them better than we know them, so sure, that's the gift that we're going to get for them. Usually there's a step in between that where they bring a $100 gift, and we say, yeah, we're probably not going to get that. Because you don't love it. <laughs> that much. <laughs> but, but here's the dynamic, right? Usually, usually you give gifts to people that you're in relationship with. People that you know. People that you have connection with. That's typically how gifts are given. But what Paul describes for us is something pretty unique that's taking place, right? What's particularly unique about the gifts that God is giving to us is the state of our relationship with him. While we were dead. And the descriptor there is to, to remind us is that we were turned away from God. By our choices, by our actions, we have this severed kind of relationship with him. We were dead is a way to, to remind us is that we are not in relationship with the author of life. Well, that's the state of our relationship with him. He gives us the gift of grace. You were dead. We were dead. Our, Paul describes the different dynamics in which our relationship with God existed in the state of our being was, is, he describes to us, you, you were dead, you were following the course of this world, you were following the ruler of the power of the air, and you were following the desires of flesh and senses. This, the church has come to describe as that unholy trinity uh, the world, the devil, and the flesh. 
that keeps us in this severed kind of relationship with God. And um, by way of reminder, for those of you that, that participated in it, and for those of you that heard announcements about it, over the course of summer, we read this book called Live No Lies, in which John Mark Comer talks about recognizing and resisting the three enemies that sabotage our peace. And he does such a great uh, way of describing these three places that we find ourselves that I thought I would just read a couple of excerpts from, from uh, his book that would remind us the state that we found ourselves in. We were, uh, first one is the world, is that we were following the course of this world, as Paul tells us. But the world is more than just a system that's out there in the socio-political ether. It is, as Eugene Peterson pointed out, an atmosphere, a mood that's crept into us like a cancerous rot. An airborne emotional pollutant we inhale every day. An anti-God impulse we circulate in our body's lungs. It's the society of proud and arrogant humankind that defies and tries to eliminate God's rule and presence in history. In summary, I, John Mark Comer, would define the world as a system of ideas, values, morals, practices, and social norms that are integrated into the mainstream and eventually institutionalized in a culture corrupted by the twin sins of rebellion against God and the redefinition of good and evil. John Marx is describing here, and Eugene Peterson quoted here, is letting us know is that simply the fact that we live, we live in, in, in the world, and it just, this, we find ourselves in this space, in this sphere in which this is just the air that we breathe. And we've just, we've learned normal from each other. We've become each other's North Star. We've become each other's plumb line. Maybe a way to describe it is this way, is that we're like the sibling that's sitting in the back seat and telling our parents, it's okay that I just hit my brother because he did it first. And it's, that's the space that we find ourselves living is that we look at one another and through it's our interaction with one another and the culture that we live in, that's how we begin to describe what is good and bad. And we're dead in that space. The other area that, that, that Paul writes to us, he says that we were following the ruler of the power of the air. Here's John Mark's, uh, Comer's description of that. Here it is again. The devil's primary stratagem to drive the soul and society into ruin is deceptive ideas that play to disordered desires which are normalized in a sinful society. We're introduced to this character, right, in Genesis chapter 3 that comes and speaks to humanity and speaks this question that plays to humanity's insecurities where the devil speaks to Eve and he says, did God really say? 
And not only that, that he goes further and begins to, to play at Eve and, and Adam and saying that if you, that God's withholding from you, and if you eat of this fruit, then you'll become like God's, and God does not want that for you. And that, that lie begins to pervade humanity's hearts. And that strategy is still at play in the world. And the devil's desire is to keep us separate from the author of life. So in that state, we find ourselves dead. And then lastly, the flesh. A quote from the book from John Mark Comer, it's two-part, says this. It says, the things we do do something to us. They shape the people that we become. With every decision we make to complain, criticize, play the victim, focus on the negative, and so on, we become more and more the kind of person who is by nature negative, grouchy, unhappy, and unpleasant to be around until eventually we lose the very capacity to live happily, gratefully, and full of wonder at our lives in God's good world. And what ends up happening in our lives is that we begin to follow our own instincts, our own senses, our own intuitions, our own feelings, and the way that we, as we do that, what ends up happening in our lives is we begin to create these neural pathways and these muscle memories. So when those types of situations come along again, we act how we've always acted. We've learned to live a certain way. And as a parent, one of the things that, that at Lurs and I, as parents, are often trying to do is to respond to our boys in certain scenarios where they respond with anger or frustration or hostility is to look at them and say, you're teaching how, your body how to act in this scenario. You're teaching yourself how to respond in a difficult situation. You're teaching yourself how to respond when things are unfair. You're teaching yourself. Your body's learning what to do in these moments. And so what Paul writes to us is that we were dead because what we learn to do is we're learning to follow the desires of our flesh and our senses. And so what is happening because of this unholy trinity at play is that we are just in this vicious cycle of life where we're looking at the world and we're saying that this is what's normal and good. We're looking at the cultures around us and the cultures that we exist in and saying this is what is normal and good. We're hearing the, the deceptive influence of, of the devil in the world and then we're, we're living out our learned practices. And it's in that state that we have this severed kind of relationship with God. And Paul, later on, will say this in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, this is why it is said. 
Wake up, sleeper. Rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And this is why in the gospel accounts, you'll hear at the very front pages, particularly if you look at like the book of Mark, and what you will regularly read is, is, is this pronouncement that's being given to the world. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And the story that is preached to us, the, the message that is given to us, is we all need this revelation to take place. We need to see that there is an example that is Jesus that is standing before us and he teaches us a new way to be human. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's time to arise. It's time to wake up. And while we were dead, this is then what Paul describes to us, we were dead, that's who we were, that's our status, that's our nature, but listen to God's nature. God's rich in mercy. And because of him, here's our new status. We're raised to life. In him we are raised to life. And here's the radical truth that's being presented to us here in this, in this passage. It's not just that we will be raised to life, that there will be a day for all of eternity where we will get to enjoy the fullness of God's presence with us. But do you notice how Paul writes this? We are raised to life. And the truth that is being spoken here to the church is this. You now, right now, are resurrected. Right here, right now, you live in new life. Not will one day live in new life, but this is who you are now. You are resurrected. The other thing that, that's being spoken to us here by the Apostle Paul is this, is that you are seated with him in Christ. Again, it's a radical truth that if we just actually sit with and meditate on what you will see Paul describe to us is that, listen, Jesus has been raised to new life and now he sits on a throne in the heavenly places. And Paul doesn't say one day you will sit with him but it's now. Where, where do you sit? Where do you reside? You, currently, in Jesus, dwell in the heavenly places. That's where you're at. That's where we are at. And so, so what Jesus is, it does for us is to say, listen, you were dead. This was your group identity, church. This was who you were before Jesus. You were following the course of the world. You were following the prince of the air. You were following your own desires and senses, but listen to your new group identity. This is who we are. We are a people who walk in newness of life, and we are a people who reign with Jesus in his new creation. That's who we are. 
Here's the therefore. Over the course of the book of Ephesians, we're recognizing that Paul gives us these deep theological truths. He reminds us of who we were and who God is. And it's always this place in which he wants us to live with this therefore. This is how it impacts everyday, regular, mundane living. Because what we're not just looking for is to walk out of here going, yes, I have a PhD in theology. I don't, by the way, right? That's not what we're looking to do, but we're looking to say, how does the knowledge of who Jesus is and what he has done radically change who I am? That's what we're hoping takes place in our lives. We were dead, but God, who is rich in mercy, gives us the gift of grace, and we have new life now. So Paul makes two conclusions here for us. So, so, We don't boast. And we do good works in Christ Jesus. Listen, I'm, I'm going to go a direction here um, that may make some uncomfortable, maybe theologically, and it may even sound a bit heretical at the beginning. I, I try to live in this posture of life where, where I try not to be a heretic. <laughs> I just, I hope, and I, right, I hope that that's the, the ground that I stand upon. What's, what's being described to us is, is this gift that's given. God, who is rich in mercy, extends to us the gift of grace. And you may have heard this definition of grace that says that grace is unconditional. And I want to push up against that a little bit. And again, I, I, I hope I'm, this doesn't sound heretical. <laughs> but the question that I would love for us to wrestle with is, is grace unconditional? And the reason I want us to ask that question is because, listen, I, I believe that grace is unmerited. I believe that grace is undeserved. I believe that, that we can never pay back God for what he has done for us. But maybe you've navigated other cultures where when a gift is given, there's an expectation of reciprocity. And the culture that Paul writes in is this culture in which this, this, these radical and gracious gifts can be given, but they are given with the expectation that it will establish relationship. And so grace is unconditioned. God comes to us, and while we were dead, we didn't do anything to, des to deserve the grace that he gives to us. But is it really the case that as God bestows upon us and, and, and radically, with his rich mercy, gives to us the gift of grace, is his expectation that, okay, that's it, we can go our separate ways now? Jesus tells this story. 
And he tells this story of, of, of this debtor. Who in their day and age, the example that Jesus gives is that, that, that this debtor owes the king, the master, an incomprehensible sum of money. And that debtor comes into the presence of the master and the response of the master is to say, your debt is forgiven. But Jesus doesn't end the story there. That is unmerited grace. That is undeserved grace. And, and what the ex expectation of the master isn't that that person now has to go back out, even though they've been forgiven, somehow raise up enough money to bring that money to the king. That is not what we're talking about here. But as Jesus continues to tell that story, what he tells is that that debtor goes out into the streets and he comes across someone that owes him money. And that person grabs that other person by the shirt, right, and says, pay back what you owe me. The master gets word of it and brings that first debtor back into his presence. Didn't I forgive you? Can I read to you a couple of passages from the New Testament? The Apostle Paul in another book, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13, it says this, work hard to show the results of your salvation. You're not earning your salvation, but you're obeying God with deep reverence and fear, for God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. And here, just in that verse alone, I believe that what Paul is doing is giving us an incredibly deep understanding of God's grace. You've been saved. God has saved you. He continues to save you. He continues to rescue you. He continues to revive you. He continues to restore you. He continues to lavish blessing and provision and favor upon you. Walk in it. Walk in it. But how are you going to walk in it? Is it up to your own ability and power to make all these things take place? No, why? Because what's happening here? God is working in you as, as you're radically changed by this gift of grace. As you're radically changed by this gift of grace, what's going to happen in your life is you're going to become a different person. And that transformation that's happening deep and below the surface of your life is also the gift of grace. God is giving you the power, the ability, and even the desires. You used to follow the, your own desires and your own senses. Get, look at what the Holy Spirit is up to in your life. This is the gift of grace. He's going to empower you to live it out. And he's going to give you new appetites and new desires to live this out. It goes, Matthew chapter 10. Here's Jesus' 10. He's gathering all of his disciples and he tells them, go and announce to them that the kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cure those with leprosy and cast out demons. Catch this. Give as freely as you have received. From God's perspective, this is what the gift is. The gift is this ongoing thing that takes 
place. The gift of grace is God meets us where we're at in our death. God meets us where where we're at. And the gift continues. The gift continues in that it radically changes who you are. Galatians chapter 5, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge in the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. This is what grace is. This is what grace looks like. Dallas Willard says it this way. The path of spiritual growth in the riches of Christ is not a passive one. Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. A new kind of effort is possible in our lives because of grace. So, don't boast. Don't boast, church. We don't have nose-in-the-air, feeling of superiority kind of posture in the world. We are the ones that recognize we were dead. And if anyone should operate in this world with humility, compassion, and empathy, it should be us. Don't boast. And do good works. Do good in the world. God is assembling us together and empowering us with his spirit to live out this new life. I've told this story before, but I want to go somewhere with it. Uh, It was the day before Thanksgiving, and the reason that I know that is um, because the church that I used to be a part of, we would have a Thanksgiving Eve service every year. And... um, I was somewhat new to the church, and I had just started attending um, a Bible college. And I was asked by, by the pastoral team if I would share my testimony in front of the church to talk about, the theme was about being forgiven. Being forgiven. And um, that was the area of Thanksgiving. And anyways, the, the morning started off, and um, the class that I was in, we were studying the Sermon on the Mount. And the, por- the, the, the portion of scripture that we were studying that morning was Jesus instructing the crowds, if you have two coats, give one of them away. So that's fresh on my mind. And, and the other reason that I know that it was Thanksgiving is um, thanks, the day before Thanksgiving is because even though it was a Wednesday, I was going to make my way to the car after class and head back to my mom's house for the weekend, even though I was staying on campus. That way I can get my laundry done and have homemade beans. Um, They didn't have any tortillas that life. It was really sad. Um, So there I am with stuff in hand for the weekend, making my way to my car. And as I make my way to the parking lot, I notice that there's someone inside of my car. 
And as, as I'm far away, but getting a little bit closer, I'm initially thinking, that's my roommate in my car. What's he doing there? But then I remembered, oh, a lot of students are leaving for the weekend to go back home. He left already. That's not Ryan in there. I'm getting closer and closer to the car. Now, listen, I had, I had a, a stereo system in the car that was worth more than the car. That's not saying a lot. The car, they're just saying that the car was worth hardly anything. So it didn't make sense to steal the car, but it made sense to steal the radio. Following? And as I'm getting closer to the car, I realize that there's this middle-aged guy trying to steal my radio. And I walk up to the car and I knock on the window. I don't recommend you do this, but I knock on the window and I opened up the door and I literally just like, hey man, how's it going? <laughs> he looks up at me with just absolute dread on his face. Again, the holy setup is that I had just heard the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus telling people. You know, it's all about persecution. If someone asks you to go a mile with them, go with them two miles. If someone asks for your coat, give them your jacket as well. Right? It's just like, that was, actually, that was the passage that we were studying. And so I'm just looking at the guy, and all I can muster in that moment is, you can go. And, and, and he he just books it out of my car, and he makes his way to his vehicle. But as he's walking out, I noticed sitting there, because he was sitting in the back seat, leaning forward, trying to get enough tension to pull my, my, my um, radio out. I noticed that his house keys are sitting in my back seat. So I went to where he lived, and I stole his stuff. No, that, um, <laughs> no so I, I, grabbed, I grabbed his house keys, and I waved him down, and I said, hey, you dropped this. And he looks at me like, what's happening right now? I said, just, again, you can go. You can leave. He gets into his car, and as he's pulling out, obviously he's in a rush to try to get out of there. And as he's pulling out, he's going so fast, he actually almost hits another car. And so I wave him down at this point, and I say, stop, you're going to hit them. And at that point, he looks at me, and he gets out of his car. He gets out of his car. And I don't know if anyone else has gone to college, but usually when the, the common uh, experience is you usually don't have money in your pockets when you're in college. But, and that's the scenario that, that I usually live in, but for some reason... I had 15 bucks in my pocket, and I pulled the money out, and I gave it to him. And at this point, he just starts saying, dude, I, my girlfriend's pregnant. I was stealing your radio because I was going to sell it. I mean, maybe it was a sob story. Maybe it wasn't. I don't know. All I know is I got his literal name. He told me, like, hey, I'm Kelly, and I was stealing your radio, and this is what I was going to do with it. And I was just like, look, man. Here's 15 bucks. And, and I said, right over there is a chapel and is the office of a Bible college. If you ever need anything, come find us. And he leaves. But here's where I want to go with the stories. On the way home, I called 
the pastor who was running the service, and I was like, hey, listen, I just really feel really impressed to tell this story because I just felt like, especially with what was happening in, in class earlier in the day, that I just want to get up and tell people, like, what I'm, what I'm learning here in this moment is that, yes, we're forgiven, but it's meant to now be something in which we extend forgiveness to others. And obviously the pastor's like, yeah, tell that story, go ahead. And, and so I did. I got in front of the church, and I, I tell this story, and this older lady in, in the church afterwards, so service ends, and we're invited to, to stand in front to, for anyone that wants prayer, and and, and this old lady, she was, just, she was slick about it. She comes up and she places her hand on my hand and just tells, like, speaks a word of blessing over me. And she turns around and she walks away. And when she walks away, there's $20 in my hand. <laughs> then my college pastor comes forward. And he says, I don't know what it was, Vince. But even before you started sharing tonight, I really felt like I was supposed to give this to you. And he hands me $20. I'm walking back to the parking lot, and I'm calling my dad, because both of us are fresh in the faith. And I'm calling him, and he's like, oh, mijo, that's amazing what just happened with that guy. He goes, hang tight there at the church. I'm not far away. Like, I just want to show up, and I just wanted to chat with you a little bit. And he shows up, and, he, and he, he, I don't even think he got out of his vehicle, but he, he, he reaches into his pocket, and he says, I feel like I should give this to you. And he hands me 20 bucks. <laughs> and I'm sitting there now, with $60 in my hand. And, and this, this indelible mark is made on my soul in that day. I can never outgive God. I can never outgive Him. And when we talk about this gift of grace, what we're not saying here is that you will somehow earn back. God's generosity. But what we are saying here is that when you interact with his goodness and grace, it compels you to live a different life. And as you do continue now to live out of his generosity, he is going to continue to be generous to you. And if it were to be a ledger sheet, God forgives you this much, and you go out and forgive someone else, guess what's just going to keep on happening? He's going to continue and continue and continue extending grace to you. So there's no way that it could be this posture that says we're trying to earn back what he's done for us, because he's only going to continue to do for us. But it is meant to change who we are. We are meant to become a new people. Where you're at currently, you're raised to life. Where you're at currently is sitting on a throne with Jesus. And that new place that you live 
should compel you to live with the king's nature and authority. If that's where you're at, if you sit on a throne in him, then doesn't it make sense that we should go out in the world and do good works? Because you have all the power and authority and resource in the world behind you.